the dismantling of the things we don't want. So there have been lots of calls from local organizers in Minneapolis to support them in various kinds of ways, particularly for abolitionists to support in various kinds of ways. I hope people will take them up on that. Um, Jay uh, Hyun Shim just wrote a piece published today in Truth Out talking about uh, the title of it, if people can find it, is Minneapolis organizers are already building the tools for safety without police. I encourage people to read that piece. And then I encourage us to move ahead and actually do the thing, which is take the risks and um, actualize and actually implement our visions. We really need many more people right now to be building the things we want. And that means you're gonna be in a position where a lot of people will be able to attack you for it because nobody's gonna be doing it perfectly. But even with that, I think we need more courageous, fearless people who are willing to try things, to experiment, um, knowing full well we're gonna fail. That's part of life. Um, I think we should not be afraid of failure. Failure is actually an opportunity for lessons that we learn to improve in the future. So I just wanna put that out there because I think that we can get caught up and, and, and stuck on just the, the undoing and the dismantling and all of this other kind of stuff. I think it's really important. Um, I think it's really important. Um, so. All right, so fortunately we are out of time now. It's just about a little bit after 2 p.m. here. Uh, again, this has been On the Road with Abolition testing our steps along the way that was put together uh, by Haymarket Books and Critical Resistance. If you find it on YouTube, they have a lot more information. They have slides as well as the folks who are speaking, more information about the speakers as well. I'm going to continue playing it. Sometimes the, the way Mutiny Radio works is that we've got the two hours a week of our slots where we can do our show, and then sometimes it ends up putting on like a little bit afterwards sometimes a little bit beyond the two hours gets uploaded to the archive. So there might be a little bit more of this. However, I am planning to head out, but I will continue to play a little bit more of this before I go and while I'm saving this episode. So thanks again so much for tuning in. Big thanks to all the activists and organizers out there working to create a better world. There's so much to learn. So I'm really grateful to be able to do that and to also be able to share their words with you listeners. So thanks again also for listening. Please follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R, -E sharing a lot of articles and things I didn't quite get to today, as well as upcoming events and ways folks can participate in making this world a more livable place for everybody. Thanks again so much, and we'll be back next week. Also, please go to mutinyradio.fm forward slash weekly rev or weekly review. If you go to the Mutiny, Re Mutiny Radio webpage under podcasts, under Friday, weekly review, be brought to the archive for the last few years of shows. And there's a lot of great interviews and a lot of great folks and music and information. So please do check that out if you're looking for some more. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Thanks so much for tuning in. And have a great week, everyone. Anybody want to say anything about the capitalism question? I mean, I already said, of course, you have to be anti-capitalist. But is there anything else that folks want to um, add to on that? Okay, if that comes to you, please do. Um, there is a question here about what is the abolitionist response to people who ask, who do you call when there are mass shootings or bomb threats or any other extreme situations? I'm gonna put um, Dean on, uh, on blast to answer this question, Dean. <laughs> Just because it's too painful for us not all not to say a million things about capitalism because we all have it. Um, so I'll just say briefly <laughs> that like obviously the point of the police is to uh, and the military is to try to, to stabilize and maintain an absolutely ridiculous distribution of wealth and, and violence in the world, right? Like you need to have standing armies everywhere. If you're going to have people living in this much extreme suffering while a very, very tiny amount of people, you know, control all the land wealth and food and transportation and whatever so yeah if we get rid of the police we might get <laughs> it's a key part of getting closer to the drastic 
changes we want in terms of actually people being able to have what they want and need and um, co-steward um, the resources that we all need to live. Um, and I think also in the more immediate piece, it's like if we want anti-capitalism, it means not having not being taxed to build giant police bunkers. I mean, you know, like that, like if we actually want resources in our communities to go towards things people want and need, like healthcare and childcare. Um, but anyway, on the question of the mass shooter um, part, I think this goes in the category of like, what about the dangerous people, which is like one of the most common questions that abolitionists face. And I just want to like remind us that one. Right now, the most dangerous people, the most dangerous guns out there are all in the hands of police and soldiers, right? Like the, the mass shooter is the police, right? The, 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 the idea that we, we it, it, that police violence and military violence and ICE violence become invisible and we only think about other forms of violence as dangerous is part of the, the mirage of living um, in a police state. Um, and I think the second thing is we can really ask like, why have we, why do we have this kind of violence in our culture, right? Like living in a highly militarized, deeply patriarchal white supremacist culture produces the kinds of violence that we are all so rightly terrified of. It's not surprising that every time there's a mass shooting, we're like, oh, this person who was the mass shooter has a record of domestic violence and is, loves white supremacy and loves, you know, patriarchal horrible ideas. Like these things go together. And so if we dismantle uh, you know, it's, I have actually been really delighted to see like the, that, that show Cops was canceled and others of these police propaganda television shows. We also need like the narrative ones like Law and Order that are on like 24 hours a day to be canceled. Like that we need to like shift our society away from one in which um, we uh, valorize as the way to feel powerful being like a gun-toting dominator. That is the story. And then a lot of people who feel powerless for a lot of reasons um, seek their power that way. And that's all about the fragility of white masculinity and many other things. But I just think it's important to shift that. And finally, I'll say on the kind of practical level, people are like, okay, but if we really do get rid of police, who will we call in this or that situation? And so many communities have already not relied on the police for so long in the history of the US since the police forces are bring more danger than anything else. And so that's all the work that people on this call are doing, right? Like that Oakland Power Project is such a great example that many of us are looking to where it's like, oh, wait, we want to be able to figure out how do people access healthcare when they can't call 911 because ambulances bring police, right? And so people are like, oh, well, we, what can we do to train up our communities to respond um, to mental health emergencies or acute other health emergencies? And, you know, they, all the work that Miriam has done, and I really want to recommend um, her website and others that have worked on that website, transformharm.org is full of all the information about, wow, how can we solve um, intimate partner violence and um, domestic violence and gender violence uh, not using the police? Um, so I think it, it is, a, you know, and someone wrote on the YouTube chat also, like, what do we do about white supremacists, violent white supremacists? Well, there actually are tons of people who are organizing to, to stop their marches, right? People who are doing anti-fascist work in the United States to show up when the, when the fascists are marching, when the white supremacists are marching and try to stop them. Like, we can, there are tons of community responses to every kind of, um, thing we fear. And the question is just, can we actually like wipe away this illusion that we need the police and the military to do these things in the world to keep us safe when really they're making us so much less safe and instead say, wow, well, what would be a good way to solve that? What would, what would be a good way to prevent that from happening? And then also if that type of harm or violence comes up, what would be a good way um, to solve it? And I think that there's, there's just unending answers to that because people are doing so much work on it. So if you're watching this and you're like, how do I find that out? Like I would recommend like using the internet, start with Miriam's pages because she really collects a lot of that information and, and, and redistributes it to all of us. But there's just, um, there's, we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. There is deep, deep thinking that's been going on for a very, very long time about how to do this. And there's room for new creative thinking as well. Um, but it, it's just essential to kind of move away from the idea that there are these certain types of violence or danger for which we need the police or military. Um, it's just not the case. Thank you, Dean. Uh, we're gonna end with this last question. I, you know, we can go on and on. I know there are so many questions about police unions and about all, but there's a question here that's been repeated several times, which is, would love to hear about how to practice abolitionist social work and how to resist mandated reporting. Um, Kay is a social worker. I don't know if we should out you, but there you are. <laughs> and maybe you can speak to this. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I'm a macro social worker. So that means that I'm mainly working on organizing and policy and I don't have the typical 
are the stereotypical one-on-one client relationship. Um, But I mean, there's this question about mandated reporting. There's so many people saying, well, why don't you just replace cops with social workers or social workers are better equipped to handle um, harm and conflict. And I really bought into this idea. In fact, I wrote about it in my essay to, uh, to get into my MSW program, but through learning more about the history of social work and also interacting with my classmates, calls to replace the cops with social workers without um, having an understanding of how social work functions in most communities are going to get us back to square one. I really liked what Kamau said just about how the PIC is always um, kind of like moving and like shifting and repurposing. And that's kind of what happens when we think about social workers. Because in a lot of communities, social do represent the cops for people. Um, they do function as the cops. They separate people from families or they, um, they report families or they only provide accountability through coercive ways. And uh, they often function as the state. So I think any call to replace cops with social workers needs to be rooted in, first of all, redefining safety, redefining what it means to be safe, and then also realizing that a lot of the tools that social workers or psychologists or therapists have are tools that are already being built within community, um, without academia and without licensure. And so that doesn't mean that I think that all social workers are bad or that in some places that a social worker would have been a better solution than a cop, but it just means that if we replace one system with another without analyzing the roots, we're just going to be back at square one. And then as for mandated reporting, I'm probably legally limited to what I can say on this huge webinar, but I will say that there are a lot of people who are doing work around this. um, And I think it just comes back to creating community systems and putting things in place um, before harm even occurs. Um, I talk a lot about pod mapping, but just utilizing tools that people have um, to make sure that community is in place before harm happens is always helpful. And I also know that we live in a world where that's not always the case, and these things are really messy, and sometimes we have to fight against our personal ethics and our career ethics um, and our personal politics and holding a job. But I will say that there are a lot of abolitionist social workers out there who are working to redefine social work and who are also working to support families without emphasizing mandated reporting or turning over their clients to the cops. And I think that we have to be a little more imaginative imaginative when we're asking for calls um, for social workers to replace cops. Thank you all so much for all of your brilliance and everything that you have shared here. Uh, today. There's just so so much more we can be talking about. Um, And I think, um, Woods, did you want to make that point about police unions before we, I start closing out? Yeah, I can say it really quickly. I said we can, like, the question on police unions is we can put, like, in response is we can push decision makers to reject funding from police unions um, to, like, enforce them to disavow the platform of a union. Um, and um, that, I mean, as an example of this, the president the president of the Colorado Senate recently w- like, um, did this. Um, and so this can like, effectively start to isolate the unions from those who negotiate, the, they negotiate their contracts with. Um, and we should struggle with um, labor unions that we're in um, we're networked with or organizing with to reject uh, police unions as valid. Um, I think a great intervention to start with would be lifting up the history of uh, police unions in union, uh, police in union busting. Um, so that's like my sort of initial response to that question. Just wanted to throw that in before I. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's really helpful. So um, I just want to end uh, with a couple of things um, to keep us to get us off to a good start. As I mentioned, I like to start on time and end on time. Um, So first, uh, can you, John, can you put a slide up here? Uh, Just wanna let folks know that um, we already included in the Eventbrite some links to some of these things and others are not there, but I want to um, offer that we have, that um, several of us have worked on a new resource 
um, in 2014, when I wrote a blog post in a very short time called Police Reforms You Should Always Oppose, I offered a set of questions, to, again, to assess um, whether a reform would further entrench the status quo or whether it had the potential to be part of abolitionist organizing. One of the proposals that I included as one that could potentially be part of an abolitionist organizing strategy was civilian review boards. And I added in caps with serious caveats because I really wanted to like not just lift it up as a thing on its own, but like there are serious caveats to that idea that I've often be th been thinking about. So over the past few years, I and several others have been discussing and thinking about civilian review boards from an abolitionist perspective. And we just put out this week, some of our thinking in a document um, and I encourage those interested to review it, to discuss it in your own communities. For those who registered via event, Eventbrite, you already received a copy of the PDF. Um, and, um, but I'll send it out again after, through Eventbrite after this event. Um, so please take a look at it. Uh, again, using the questions that we offered about thinking about whether particular reforms are recuperative or, or liberatory, you can think about uh, civilian review boards within that frame as well uh, to come up with decisions that make sense to you. The second is that a group of educators um, and abolitionist educators uh, came up with a new document just this week about um, organizing to get cops off your campuses if you're a college or university person and they have eight specific actions to take abolitionist action on your campus um, and that document uh, there's a, a uh, we're posting the slide should have some uh, information about the link where you can find that but you can also expect that I'll send that out in the email that I sent out afterwards um, from this don't forget to join CR tomorrow um, there's a flyer, there should be slides up for that, and there's a link also that people can go to, which is bit.ly abolition 2020. Uh, there's a great event happening on June 16th about abolition uh, organizing and education in the schools. And um, finally, on um, Monday, uh, Interrupting Criminalization and the Movement for Black Lives will be putting out a defund police toolkit. So keep your eyes out for that. Um, there'll be more information and I'll make sure I share it on social media so people can know where that is as well. Um, and uh, want to make sure to thank again, our interpreters who have been stellar, our ca a live captioner who's been stellar for this whole time as well. Um, in the YouTube chat that we dropped the links to their uh, ways that um, you could reach out to them, but also, if you want to tip them, sending them a cash app or Venmo or PayPal way of just letting them know how much we appreciate them and their time, you can do that. And we would, uh, you know, I know they would appreciate that as well. Um, and the last thing I want to say is that what we were trying to do with this conversation today was to try to really make sure that we continue to have these conversations broadly to get clarity, to be grounded in our uh, thinking, to be grounded in our analysis, to realize that sometimes we do have to just hold the line on certain things. It's not, you know, there's a consistent push for everybody all the time to say, you've gotta be pragmatic, you've gotta be practical, you've got, you know what? Sometimes pragmatism is just re-entrenching oppression. And it is just keeping the status quo going. So in this moment where there's a possibility for some bold demands, we always have to hold true to the horizon that we're trying to reach to abolition as the horizon. And we're gonna have to figure out how we get from where we are to where we wanna go. And that means we have to figure out strategies that are going to chip away at the prison industrial complex as a whole, not just policing, not just prisons, not just surveillance, not just the apparatuses of these death-making institutions. We are gonna have to figure out ways of doing that. It isn't enough to just scream out a slogan, okay? That's a slogan is not a strategy to win. 
We have got to figure out how we are going to actually implement these steps that are going to take us from where we are to where we want to go without being in a position where we have to come back in five years to tear down the very thing that we've put in place. So I hope that everybody who listened today feels like you got something positive out of this conversation. I hope you will continue the conversation in your communities. I hope you will take the resources that are being created and made and just adapt it, use it. The beautiful example of eight to abolition that made this wonderful intervention just in an organic way over 24 hours that is circulated worldwide shows us that we have incredible power right now to be able to shift ideas, shift the culture and make real transformative change. I hope that everybody will join in doing that. So, so happy to be able to have this conversation. So incredibly grateful to every single person who was on this call, to Kay, to uh, Dean, to Kamau, to Woods for taking time out to do this. Again, to our interpreting team, and to the folks from Critical Resistance who hold held us down from the back end, Mohammed, Jess, Jay, and especially also um, uh, uh, John from Haymarket, who's also made the live stream happen. Thank you all. Hopefully, we won't see you again soon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like literally. I just want to go and be a hermit. That's really what I want to do. I don't like people. This is a fact. Everybody knows it. But we're still going to be here fighting till we win. So thank you all for joining us today. Take care. Bye. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. For a burger, Mutiny Radio thinks you'll find the best burger in San Francisco at Counter Offer, located inside Bender's Bar and Grill. Counter Offer's menu aims to please your drunk face. Tater tots are served daily. On Tuesday nights, Counter Offer serves specials off the Taco Bell menu, only better. You can enjoy your favorite Taco Bell item without the guilt. Counter Offer uses only fresh ingredients and never store bought shit. Special ingredients are made from scratch daily, including beans, ketchup, mustard, habanero sauce, and ranch dressing. Counter Offer even serves vegan mac and cheese. All of this great food is served 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. daily and until 11 p.m. on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Counter Offer is located inside Bender's Bar and Grill at 806 South Venice. Be sure to tell them Mutiny sent you. Counter Offer, baby. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio. Got the mutiny, mutiny radio, my friend. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny, mutiny radio. Got mutiny radio, my friend.
be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Things that are that <laughs> motley, every day, That though. Motley Able. crew. Abel Jaramillo over here. That motley, every day, that motley that motley crew Abel Jaramillo over here just flipping everybody off yes. looking like he just no, got really, out of court I, mean, I don't think it's just you, it's not something you could just do six times a week for like five months and then just assume that you're going to be really good at yeah or be better at I mean it's just it's it's weird it's it's a tough way to do it like it, is is it is, is comedy something that you actually saw yourself doing your entire life even as even as a kid or is this something yeah. that you just kind of grew into no I mean I grew into it I mean I again you know I was after high school, I was just going to college, and then I met, um, you know, Sammy, one of my buddies from high Sammy school. Sammy obeyed, yes. Not a boy. They're looking for Abel right now. I know. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the police. They actually think he OD'd. Like, I know one of these assholes are parked illegally. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you're a fire truck. Uh, but the... Um, the uh, what was it? What was the question? We were talking about uh, the. Oh yeah, was this something? So, was it, yeah, was this something that you saw yourself doing your never whole saw life? Myself, you know, the weird thing about stand up is I never really saw myself doing stand up. I, I kind of wanted to go to law school. My sister's a doctor, once a lawyer. I always thought it'd be really fun to be a lawyer because I like uh, I like reading. I like learning up on stuff, and then I think being in a in a courtroom battling some other dude would be hella fun. Right. Um. So that that's something that I was actually focused on doing. But then I met my friend Sam. He was doing stand up comedy a year into it brought me into uh, a couple mics um but that's pretty much that's basically where we started and then you just get addicted to that man what I was mean, your what was your do you remember your first, first experience time, do you yeah. remember that yeah i did mission pizza over there in fremont it was like valentine's day yeah 2009 i think so i just go up there and uh again i invited a lot of my friends i'm from fremont so there's like 40 of my friends right and i just remember going up there and just doing like 20 minutes 25 minutes almost the first time and I did really well because all my friends were over there. I, like, killed it. I was like, okay, this is really – this is what I should be doing. This is awesome. And then I hit, like, four mics that week, and it was just, like, not the case. And, that, yeah, it, it, it hurts, right? It hurts. The world is just all like, uh, I, mean, I don't know who Mark is, so this isn't funny. Why are you talking about your friends? <laughs> like, you guys know Mark. I'm like, we didn't go to your high school, sir. Okay, so how do you deal? Like, how do you deal with that rejection? Because here's the thing about comedy, man. Like, when the crowd rejects you, you feel it immediately. Yeah, it's not like you, you put up a – I don't care. You, you're not supposed to. to. I, oh, most definitely. Oh, I don't care. I just yell back at them. Right. I said, I'm sorry, you're not too uh, smart to understand this dick joke, but right. I don't think it's not funny. <laughs> it's a very sophisticated dick joke. That's exactly yeah, what's going you're on. You're going to get rejected by hot girls eight times a week. Who gives right. a shit about the crowd and Billings? Well, see, that, that's... <laughs> yeah, that's like, I mean, that's a great like, what point, What I really though. wanted was Tanya, not for you idiots to like me, so I don't give a shit. No, no, but that's a great point, though, man, because yeah. I feel like, and I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like when you get accustomed to the feeling of, yeah. of rejection, of instant yeah. rejection, it's easier to go out into the world and yeah. just be as badass as you want to yeah. because it's, it can't hurt you. It's like it's like being whooped on the back so many times that your back is just numb now yeah. at this point. So, I mean, do you find... It's like, I don't love you. It's like, like, I don't care. You're like, I don't love These me either. jokes aren't working, Kelly. I'm at Mission Pizza. I don't love me either, okay? I know. I tell you, dude, that's, that's the thing about it. You cannot care about the crowd. You have to... Rejection... Even when you get great, you're getting rejected. I mean, there's always going to be rejection. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, even when you blow up, there's going to be roles that you're not going to get or TV shows that you're not going to be on, even if you're out there killing it. Right. So you got to get quick. Rejection should be the first thing you should actually think of. Right. So when you're happy, when the one rejection doesn't happen, you're like, you know what? Things are good. <laughs> I'm going to be it's fine. Like, uh, it's like they're serving breakfast after 10. This isn't a victory. <laughs> is there is, is there like a goal for you, though, Kabir? Like what, what is – I get this question from uh, – 
uh, younger comics like what is that you want to do like what where do you want to be in like five yeah. or ten years what is what is the goal that Kabir Singh has in mind in terms of yeah. comedy or entertainment well listen you can't put a number on when you want to achieve it but like literally my goal is I love doing stand-up comedy that's my thing I would love performing on the road 260 days a year yeah. all over America and the world repeatedly theaters and sell tickets of course fortunately you have to get on television to do that and other stuff that you have to get good at to do what you want to do um but that's that's basically the goal and really honestly the goal i mean of just going city to city and making people laugh i've pretty much already over i've already achieved i mean i get to go i mean i'm not getting paid great and there's a lot of shows that do suck yeah. but i'm still hitting that i still get to go out and make people laugh so it's a lot of fun it would be fun doing it while being getting rich, I guess. That, that would also be dope. I, I'm, Is that the way to say it? Yeah. Is that the right way to answer that question? I think that's the most direct I'd way like to do to it. I'd like to get rich doing exactly what I'm what doing I right do. now. What I want to do, please. <laughs> right now, please. it's good. Um, I, I, it's, uh, 20 more grand a show would be nice. <laughs> I know I know you're going city to city, and that definitely is one of the perks of uh, doing stand-up comedy, but you're originally from the Bay Area, Bay Area. Um, from Fremont. Uh, my, my question is this though, do you think that there is a huge difference between like Bay area, the Bay area comedy scene versus out, you know, the rest of the world? And I, know, I yeah. hate to sound pretentious cause I know the Bay area people right. usually sound like, you know, our shit don't stink or something like that. Right. But what, what is Bay area comedy compared to somewhere on, you know, in the Midwest or, or down South? We, 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 we are literally at the best, the Bay area is the best place to get good at stand up because it's a melting pot and you're going to get all different kind of crowds throughout the week. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, you could just go in there and do, I mean, there's just so many people here. Right. Uh, people talk about the Midwest, like it's easy. They're the easiest crowds. Really? They're happy to see you. It's Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hate to be a dick, but <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're, right. they're, it's way harder to impress and make people laugh at Roosters on a Sunnyvale when the whole Oracle and Yahoo's over there that's just trying to get drunk or San Francisco with all these guys where you can't say anything. At all. Right. You know, they're way harder than going in the – I mean, Bay Area is a perfect place to get good. I mean, this is the best place. You go to different rooms, get good. Midwest, Chicago, Denver, they're the same people. Yeah. Everyone watches the same stuff on television – I mean, it's crazy. Everybody yeah. watches that. And you kind of already know how people think just by watching the news and the shows that are successful and the cartoons that do well. Yeah. They're not totally different of it. When you start going to like Glasgow and stuff where your accent, like Scotland, where you're just talking and they're like, I don't know what he's saying. Right, right, right. That's when it becomes an issue. Has, <laughs> has that been an issue oh, for you? Oh, Lord. I went, I lied to this promoter like four years into stand-up. He's like, you're a headliner. I'm like, yeah, headline America. Oh, this is great. He's like, yeah, we need to headline these, uh, this like UK tour. And I was like, hell yeah. He's like, you got an hour? I'm like, yeah, I got an hour. At Tommy T's right. in the San Jose Improv. I'm four years in. <laughs> right. They throw me in a Glasgow in like Birmingham, and I'm just up there like, this is going to be tough. <laughs> like, I mean, Glasgow, they just stared at me. I've never seen it. I was an hour. And I was good. I still had an hour of good shit. I was yes. doing it. But it was just 45 minutes, and people were just looking at me like, I don't understand the word that's coming that's out of That's incredible. Time. And I'm like, it's English. Right. And they tell me something. So I kind of don't understand what you're saying. This it's, is weird. It's two people speaking English, completely different accents. Same don't know language. what the hell. Yeah. So so what's going on in your mind? I mean, you're talking about going overseas to do comedy. Oh, yeah. And you're you kind of, you know, you're kind of gassing yourself up to this guy by saying, yeah, I got an hour. Oh, I mean, so, so what all else those, are you going to tell the guy? It's you're not going to say no. Two grand a show. Yeah, you're not going to say no. An hour, sir. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So what Which you, hour would you like? <laughs> what are you thinking in those? What are you thinking in those 45 minutes where they're just the watching hour. you? I'll bring it, sir. Well, no, no. What are you thinking in, the, in that time where, they, where you're just being judged? <laughs> Oh, do, while I was bombing? Yeah. Oh, they immediately knew I wasn't shit the minute I got there. Like, <laughs> they put me on the first show in London. like 30 minutes into that, just sweating. I'm like, so you guys, uh, the McDonald's here tastes funny. Right. <laughs> just it. Scotland was tough. They didn't understand a word. But you know what? They were so polite. Like, I, they were just so cool that they wanted me to do well. They understand there was a language barrier. They understand that it's not my fault. Yeah. There's a lot more respect for comedians in the UK, like we're looked at, like there's a lot of TV shows in the UK where they just put stand-up comedians on a panel and they just talk about their opinions. Right, Something right, right. that we would destroy here. If exactly. Yes. Shit. Like the, the structure over there, comedians are really well respected. So even though I was eating, eating it, and in my head I'm like, this is really bad. They were still 
not rude. They weren't booing. They were just listening, and they're like, you know, they understood when Prince, to clap. Yeah. But you could just tell as a comedian that, dude, none of this is working, and you're you're not going to get paid. You're not, you're not getting that satisfaction, right? <laughs> you're not scratching that itch. You got a piece of paper over there, man, with some stuff written down? Did you want to read some of that stuff off? Oh, no, I want to ask a question, yeah. Oh, you want, okay, go Yeah, I want to ask you a couple questions. Oh, you want to ask me a question? Job. Because, like, as a comedian, right, so I've been doing just stand-up. never had a day job while I was doing stand-up, at least, other than the telemarketing I did at 15, trying to hook up with that girl. Rejection again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but the... Um, when you do stand up, when you have like a full time job, dude, yeah. like how do you balance the two? Like, I guess my question is if you have to do radio in the morning for a big radio show on like a Wednesday, but you get this gig in Arizona that doesn't pay anything, or a gig in LA that doesn't pay anything, but industry is there and you need to be show your face over there to do well and you got the spot. I mean, how do you pick that? Well, at this point, you know, I, I got to a point where um, I had to make a decision. It's like, look, I, I signed this contract to do this radio show that I really enjoy doing. Um, but at the same time, you know, if I, if a great opportunity comes up in uh, in L.A. or Seattle or wherever yeah. it may be, you have to make a decision. You have to choose, well, you know. never good opportunities in Seattle. <laughs> well, yeah, or wherever it may be, wherever it may be, right? on the Seattle gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come down to uh, Topeka and see if, see if I can make that make that work. No, um, I mean, it, but again, like when you – so you, you just have to weigh the options, You right? just have it's to like, weigh the options whichever one is worth it more i mean if if it's a big show on a, on, on the radio on wednesday morning and i want to go to la or whatever but i but let's say they're not paying or let's say i'm not too sure about the booker or i don't yeah. know i don't know the people that well i might side with the radio show right, right. although my first love is stand-up comedy i only got into radio because of stand-up comedy um that's i kind of i kind of stumbled into into sports talk radio right. and, and morning radio so i know where my loyalties are it's definitely towards comedy but yeah sometimes you just got to make a tough decision and, and, what, and sometimes you do have to pass up on a gig that Sounds cool, yeah. but you're not very sure about. Oh, you know, you, know, you start weighing it. Anyway. Exactly. Like, oh, this person's there, that person's there. You, you might drive seven hours. People. You might drive seven hours to get there, oh, and all yeah. of a sudden you're getting bumped. Nine people, you're getting bumped. Your boss is calling you. So yeah, <laughs> where so are you? It's just a lot of hard decisions, <laughs> man. You just you just got to know. But I look at it like this: it's a good problem to have, you know, because because you got two things that you love. I have two things in, that I love in my life: radio and comedy. Yeah. I get a chance to, you know, I've worked hard enough to be able to be in, engulfed in both of them. So. It's a good problem to have, but I'll just have to make the tough decision. But radio wasn't your only job doing stand-up, though, right? You had no, no. I, before radio, like, before I actually did full-time radio, I used to sell asphalt for a, for a uh, construction company. Geez. I was an asphalt estimator. Estimator. I would, I would go to your parking lot. I would measure it all out. I'd, uh, Were you uh, good at that? I was pretty good. You, dude, let me tell you everything, something. Let me tell you something. Asphalt... Is a lucrative industry. I can it's imagine. everywhere. I mean, it's everywhere. You really don't think about it until you actually start selling it, and then you yeah. look around. And you're like, God damn! Every single road, every single freeway, almost all driveways. Yeah, you no, know, it's know all. That. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, man. But you don't notice it until you're actually making money off of it. That's gangster. So what, yeah. What time did you have to go to work for that? That was when you're in sales. You kind of have more of an open oh, schedule. Yeah. So, you, so you know, you can make your own schedule. You so that one that, with the Big Mac. All, all the time, bro. One o'clock. Parking I'm, I'm lot at, looks like shit. Yeah, Give it doesn't matter. Cheese. It's all cracked up. I got an In-N-Out burger, so I'm good to go. So this is a brand new building. <laughs> Pull your pants up. But what was the worst thing about, all, like, out of all the jobs you had while doing stand-up? And yeah. I still, I, I can't imagine this not being radio just because of the, the timing. But what was the worst thing about any job you had while you had to mix in with stand-up? Ooh, uh, I'd say, okay, I'd say the worst thing about um, this one job I had where I was basically customer service. <laughs> Uh, and I sat in a cubicle all day, and I sold. You, you ever seen the? You ever seen office you know, space? The, the office? The office, right? Oh, the, the office. show. The yes. office. You I know how close. they? You I know how close. they? Yeah, very close. Far away it was well, the office. That got one word right, actually. The <laughs> office space sentiment. That was my life. Sitting in that cubicle, I've definitely had that feeling. But just like the office, the TV show, I actually sold paper products. No way. So I was selling paper plates, selling paper cups. My whole life was paper. It was just a sad state of affairs. <laughs> you, it, I was just everything in my life was was bendable and breakable and rippable because I, I was just engulfed in this paper world so that that was the worst part about doing that job customer service for a person like me yeah is that i hate sitting down for yeah. hours at a time i hate being quiet for hours at a time <laughs> i'm on the phone and i'm on the computer all day which i cannot just i cannot stand that and it would burn the fat off my soul dude so when i would leave there that's at five o'clock so scary to hear there when i would crazy. leave there at five o'clock yeah. i hated life life I, I, Damn, and, and here's the thing. I lived on the same block as I worked on. 
understand that. I lived on the same block as I worked on. This is over on uh, on Cherry Street. So it was like no commute, you would just no, walk. It was just I would rest, just every day I wake up, I walk to work, I I burn on the inside, then I'd go home, smoke some weed, cry for a little while, oh, and then and then just listen to sports talk radio, and then just repeat in the morning. It was the saddest. Damn, it dude. was the saddest time of my life. And you man. just hated paper, like you 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 refused to I write ref- jokes on paper. Yeah, I, now I, I'm like Jay Z, man. I just freestyle like, everything. Give me cardboard. Now. I'm not using this shit. Cardboard. <laughs> I what just, do you mean there's no cardboard? Isn't this the improv? So that was it right there, man. That was that was the uh, the worst. You guys need cement or paper? <laughs> I can't imagine having to do that shit because, like, it just – it's got to be worse if you do the, a show. Yes. Bomb. Wake up in the morning. Sell no paper. Sell no paper. <laughs> it's like that was a fun 24. It was a terrible – yeah, I had a lot of those 24. The 72-hour the power. The 72-power hours. I guess you see you getting you bumped on a show. It's like, you don't know how much I need this. Uh, I need this. I got to sell right. these cups. The paper industry is literally – crashing <laughs> they've got these notes on the phone now it's just this is crazy man what's the single worst moment of your life at a day job other than getting fired Ooh, single worst moment of my life um i worked at a liquor store for a long Damn, time dude, how actually. many jobs did you oh, have i've had dude. many jobs my friend how old are you here uh, like nine i, I mean I've, I've done everything man i've i worked my first job was, was when i was need? 11 years old Who, no oh what were you doing at 11 at 11 years old i was Legally. stocking i was stocking beers and soda that is so illegal I'm not, I'm not even supposed to touch the beer but i was stocking beers and soda and, and by the time i was 13 i moved myself up to the register and i was working the register you moved yourself I was, up well i mean i had worked myself <laughs> up to the register you became right? manager at 11 and a half i'm gonna fucking start working the cashier i'm assistant manager at 12 are heavy. I was. Like, hey, hey, real question about the beer. You ever fucking? Did you ever slide a beer in? Did oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, dude. I said I got just a drunk Rudy watching dude, Dodgers. First, first time I got base. drunk, I snuck some club mudslides out of the liquor store, and I drank them on the side of the liquor store next to the dumpster, and I got super drunk, and then I went home to go play Nintendo all day. It was it was crazy. That's the life, dude. That was the real life. For rejection. When I was 13 years old, I worked my way up to the register, and the funniest thing ever, dude. They used Who's to, the boss? Sorry, Indian? My, no, this uh, this uh. Italian, I know some Indian. Italian like, dude. what are you? How old? Are you? <laughs> 22. Okay, well, you can sleep. You don't look Mexicans are getting younger. By, you look 10, but okay, grab the beer. He was he was a, he's an Italian guy that's Italian actually dude. been in this neighborhood uh, for a long time, and they've owned the shop for a long time. He gave me a job at 11 because I used to go in there all the time and 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 buy baseball cards. And I got that was my first job when I was 13 years old, Kabir. I was asking grown men for their ID be- before I sold them their malt liquor. I would have stole that liquor. You probably would have whooped my ass at 13. Dude, I, I used to, I used to, at 13 years old, I used to be like, hey, man, here's a, I need to see your ID. And then they, like, pull out their wallet halfway. Yeah. And then they think about it and look at me and be like, let me see your ID. Yeah. Where's your ID at, you know? And, but that was just, that was my job at the time. Where's but, your father? I need cigarettes. You but, can't but handle the, that. The worst time I ever had was when I got robbed. I got robbed in the liquor store, man. Robbed at the liquor yeah, store Yeah, I got, I had a gun placed right Some to your cheek. And you're like, thir- how old were you? No, I wasn't 13. I was like Actually, I worked there for a long time, so I was probably like 19. 19? Yeah. That's still pretty young now. Yeah, still, yeah. P- still pretty bad. I had a gun pressed up to my was this cheek. Was another liquor store? You no, worked same there for liquor 14 store. years. Same liquor store. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you worked there from 11 to 9? When did you leave? I, dude, I used to work there, like, you know, Dad, sporadically. Shut that shit down. You got to leave. I've been here since I was 11. <laughs> right? I'm like chaining Fuck myself McDonald's. to the wall. Spill <laughs> that somewhere else. That was it, man. That was that was probably the single worst time. I mean, Did I've had some pretty bad jobs. going through your head? Uh, I'm going to die. Was he Indian? No, he was. I think I'm pretty sure he was black. Give yeah, me sure all of your dude. shit. Yeah, he's, everything, <laughs> dude. Everything. I, I, I just opened up the register and just started handing over handfuls of yeah, money. Yeah, yeah. Like, what are you going to do? You know, I don't care. Yeah, you know, I'm trying to live. Yeah. I'm trying to survive, you know? Sir, I've had my puberty in here. If you think you're walking <laughs> out of here with a fucking dime, I've got another thing coming. All right? I have to get high and play Nintendo in four hours. <laughs> yes. I can't have you taking my boss's shit. Oh, my God. That sounds like a That's terrible the one, man. day, dude. That's What'd the one. What did you do after you got robbed? Uh, I just basically stood there stunned for yeah. about 15 minutes. Um, people, people were... I didn't even call the people police. People were coming in, sir. People were coming in. There was like a long line of people lining up, and I was just sitting there, like just stunned for like 15 to 20 minutes. And I couldn't believe. Can what I happened. just get a Snicker bar? I know you just got robbed, but I really <laughs> need the Snicker bar. My wife's being a bitch. It was rough, man. <laughs> it was rough. That that, but that was the bottom. That was hands down the worst moment. Hands down. There's no. What else could it be worse? You told the ultimate tale of it. Actually, what to, could be worse? Actually, Something to be honest with you, cut my hand off. To be honest with you, now when I think about it, sometimes I think about the fact of how I actually hated my life. Yeah. When I worked at the paper company. Right. Versus that one moment where I was scared for my life. Yeah. And honestly, man, I think maybe hating your life for about <laughs> four years was probably still worse than having a gun pressed to your face at and 19. Ro- yeah. Could you imagine that was 
That was one moment of terror and a lifetime of stories. I got to tell you. That right there was four years of my life that I robbed. wasted that I just, I can't get back. I got to rob somebody. I got to rob God. I paper. Give me all Sorry. your leads. <laughs> Trevor, this is, it's way too early for this. Is that a gun? Oh, man. <laughs> No, that's got to be badass. I couldn't imagine doing. I couldn't imagine being robbed at a liquor store. Yeah, I would definitely give them all the money, but I would also like. You gotta I give would it be up. Doing something weird, like giving them tickets to shows too. You gotta give it up, man. <laughs> Are we gonna do the? Uh, they said just stop talking, and we're gonna do. Oh, do we? Because it's like ten twenty-one. Or, yeah. Oh, we can keep talking. This is dynamite no. shit. No, they. Hey, they told me. Hey. They told me not to stop. They, or not to say anything. Just stop and then get back in there. Hell yeah. I'm on fire. <laughs> these stand-up jokes are gonna be terrible. We're not gonna okay, use no, any of that. Keep it rocking. That's why I, I don't want to say anything. We'll just keep you guys going. Need a break? The walls are okay. coming down. They're opening up. You got more questions? Oh shit! It's almost 10:20. It is 10:20. That's why. That's why. That's why I did that. But shit. if you got more questions, keep it rolling. Is there anything else you want to ask? Anything funny you want to just end it with? I get. I'll. I'll. I'll wrap it up with something. Oh, let's. For how long? Yeah, let's let's do that. I'll I'll intro. Do you want me to ask you that? Yeah, could you do me a favor? Could you just bring in um, yeah, who your favorite comedian? Yeah, you could ask me uh, who my favorite comedians were. All right. And then I'm just gonna uh tell you the fact that I never watched stand up until I started it. Okay, cool. Okay. Jay, you gotta call it, man. <laughs> All right, you guys ready? All right, we're set. All right. All right, it's the rare formcast here with Rudy Ortiz and my guest Kabir Singh. We've been talking about everything today, man. We got into sports. We even made some bets today. Yes, we did. We've been talking a little bit of comedy uh, for the last couple of minutes. Um, but I want to ask you though, man. You know, of course, you're doing your thing. You're going everywhere and and just making a name for yourself. But what are some of the names in comedy um, that you either looked up to or admired or were really into yeah. their their style? What what are some of the names that that, that come to mind? Yeah, a stand-up. I was a super late bloomer when it came to stand-up. I don't think I started watching stand-up until, like, maybe... I think the first stand-up comedy I have ever saw on TV was, like, maybe six months before I went on stage. Wow. And it didn't didn't blow me away or anything. I couldn't even tell you who I saw, actually. But I did see it. But um, the first live show I ever did was the Rooster Teeth Feathers comedy competition when right. Sammy won it. Right. And then I saw that. That was my first live comedy show. And then I went back and I started watching stand-up. And really, I mean, that was not... You know, it was like Dave Chappelle, Dane Cook, those guys... I mean, it sucks whenever I talk to old school people. They just hate me immediately. Cause they, Five yeah. seconds of talking. What kind of comedy do you like? Ah, I started watching that about uh, nine years ago. Because <laughs> uh, they, they don't like the fact that you're, they probably feel like, oh, this guy. Doesn't. Yeah, and I went back. I mean, I knew the, the social pressures of knowing. I mean, I went back and watched the stand-up from like Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and stuff like that. But I don't think there was. It's weird. Like, as a comedian, I'm sure there was a comedian that inspired you to, to to do stand-up there's really there's not like a comedian i could pinpoint and be like that's the reason why i do stand-up comedy or that's who i want to be it's kind of weird but no my, mine is paul rodriguez because and i say that because what? no let me tell you why because that was the Edit first that, actually i know paul really well that, that's what i'm saying <laughs> no paul is still out there paul is still out there doing he's his gangsta, thing dude. but he's i mean just being like a being like a young mexican kid like listening to watching a lot of stand-up comedy because i loved watching comedy as a kid right? right but then when i saw paul rodriguez he came out with an album a long time ago called macaroni or mac and cheese or mac macaroni and cheese i think it's yeah. called macaroni and cheese um and that was the first First ever CD or anything audio that I actually ever purchased. What year was that? I don't want. I want to say Were 19. Were you 11 working at the liquor store? <laughs> yeah, my, it was my liquor store money. Um, I, I want to say like 1994, 93, okay. wow. something like that. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah and yeah. I bought that. I went to Suncoast. I, I bought it at Suncoast. Uh, bought the CD, bought the album, and that was it right there, man. Once I heard Paul Rodriguez, I was like, this is. You this ever is, work with this him? This is cool. No, never had a chance to work with For him. For real? I've met him a couple of times, but never. I saw him out over at uh, at the radio station. Came in. He came in a couple of times to do um some. Nice. Sets, yeah, real, real nice guy, real cool That's guy. Cool. That's cool that you have that kind of guy. Because when I was growing up, there was no. Indie, I mean, for you, I mean, I, I don't sure if it was just because he was, was, uh, was well, Hispanic. Him, him but being I mean, Mexican definitely helped the situation it for did, me. But like, I mean, it a, probably wasn't the game breaker. But for me, like Russell didn't blow up till like 1999, right. and I don't think I really watched his stuff until way later, until he already blew up. But yeah, yeah, it's cool, man. Stand up is great. There's a lot of great comedians. I, I like watching the comedians that are just. Uh, that that just I get to work with. I mean, there's so many. It's crazy going to like when you're doing a show in like Chicago and Boston. Just your feature and openers alone. Those yes. Guys are like killers. Some of them. Yes. Like, what is this guy trying to make my life harder right now? I don't. It, know. Is 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 the, to be on the same team here? There's <laughs> nothing to prove here. I mean, is that a thing though? Do you get that a lot? Like yeah, like when dude. you when you featured oh. before, do comics ever like say, you know what? I don't want to know. I don't know if Kabir's is the right, right feature because he might blow it out the water. Then I yeah. gotta follow him. Uh, there's been the three times I've ever been kicked out of stand-up comedy, like getting canceled from weekends. Two of them. 
Where Fomo was featuring for other comedians, they're like, we don't even want to. But it's so rude to do that because number right. one, I always hated on them. But I was like, that's such stupid. That's so dumb. You're headlining. You should be able to do whatever. And then you'd go there and do it. And then you know they, they wouldn't even ask you to take it down. You just get canceled. But then when I started headlining and started going to like, <laughs> like you know, like Atlanta should do the shows, and I'm just all like, yeah, could you tell this guy to calm down here? <laughs> We're just trying to have a good just time. Just ease up right yeah, here, yeah. yeah. But, like, you know, the feature spot's obviously the easiest opening spot. But, like, uh, it is weird, though. Like, that you, you got to, like – but, again, there's a lot of great comedians out there that, that just are stuck at that spot because they don't have the TV credits to headline. It has right. nothing to do with their stand-up. I was stuck featuring for, like, five years before I got on Stand-Up Revolution. Uh, before that, it was basically just me bearing other headlines. You make enemies doing that. They don't yeah. like you anymore. Do, do you do you find that do you find that you have like a way of writing jokes or or something that works specifically for you? Because I know that's something that comics you know comics all have a different way of coming up with material. Yeah. What is what is your way? Do you have a formula that works for you? Or? I, I do have a formula, and I think we're gonna try it out actually. Because what I do is I I don't really write like. I don't sit there and have like a structure of the way I write my jokes. What I do is I come up with premises and then I will go on stage ah. or just kind of tell people with my friends, could you listen to me? And then we will build a joke together. Yes. I mean, what happens is someone will give me like uh, – and a lot of times I won't use that specific idea, but someone will show something like, okay, what if you do this, which I'm going to do right now actually because okay. I want to try this actually because I do have a – I've been doing a bunch of sets this week and there's three jokes that I've been working on, two actually that I, that I want to do. When you come up with the premise, you just kind of go out there and say it and you try to help it out. So I got a joke about aliens. I've always wanted a UFO joke, and I've written like five in the past, and they've all sucked. Right. So this is the only one where I thought I came up with a really good premise. So I'm going to throw it out there. And then well, you got a, you got a microphone right there, but we actually do have a stage here. Um, we do. With, with the Would microphone, with the microphone set up. Um, oh, well. You might as well just. Right, right now. That was a good bridge, though, right? 30 seconds. Okay, cool. Bridge is good? Yeah, yeah that was good. That sounds like a wonderful idea, Mr. Monet. I'll be delighted to come. And Mr. Boynton, do you speak for him as well? Mr. Boynton has been spoken for many times. The trouble is he doesn't answer. <laughs> oh, you mean about tonight. Yes, Mr. Monet, I feel sure I can speak for Mr. Boynton. Oh, fine. I'll be leaving then. I'll walk you to the door, Mr. Monet. Oh, my address is uh, 9066 Shoham Drive. Try to get there before 10. And I'm sure that as my students say... We will have a ball. <laughs> I'm sure that we will. Yes, until tonight then, Miss Brooks. Stay in the groove. Oh, Natch, Mr. Manet, Natch. <laughs> and Mr. Manet. Yes? Don't take any wooden francs. <laughs> Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will return in just a moment. But first, here is Vern Smith. Ladies, regardless of age, skin type, or previous beauty care, doctors prove you too may win a lovelier complexion with palm olive soap. But to win this lovelier complexion, the kind men admire and women envy, you must stop improper cleansing. Instead, use palm olive soap the way doctors advise. Remember, 36 doctors, leading skin specialists, advised 1,285 women, many with complexion problems, to use palm olive this way. Some have dry skin, some oily, some coarse looking. Using palm olive soap alone, two out of three won lovelier complexions. Now, here's what the doctors advised Wash your face with palm olive soap. Massaging for one minute with Palm Olive's Soft Lather. This cleansing massage brings your skin Palm Olive's full beautifying effect. Rinse. Do this three times a day for 14 days. It's that simple. But doctors have proved this way using nothing but Palm Olive really works. So forget other beauty care. Use Palm Olive soap alone for a lovelier complexion. For loveliness all over, use big, thrifty bath size palm olive in your tub or shower. After Mr. Monet left, I tried to get Mr. Boynton on the phone to tell him about the invitation. But ours is a party line, a four-party line to be exact, and every time I picked up the receiver, it was in use. Always careful not to lose my temper, I sat by the phone and drummed lightly on the top of the table until my five fingernails were impaled in the mahogany. 
Uh, then I tried it once more. As sure as my name is Lucy Schofield, that's the only way to treat man, Emma. Believe me, if I had to do it all over again, Emma, I'd, oh, excuse me a minute, dear. I think I smell my roast burning in the kitchen. Now, that's a coincidence. And if you're listening to Mutiny Radio, you've made a great choice because they're still filming this cool thing. Yay! The rare form cast. Uh, Here we go. Uh, are you gonna Are you gonna come around now? Are you gonna start on this side, or are you gonna? I'm gonna start on this side. You are gonna start on this side. I'm gonna get out of the way. Um, so I was thinking. The, I was gonna say my camera died right when Rudy was doing his little intro. So into I'll, I'll grab Rudy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So after sign on, right? You're gonna hit him with what you're gonna see there's no fucking way you're gonna come. You know what I mean? Like maybe we'll get the sign to go out. Okay. Headphone deal. I don't know. Okay. You looking at me here like no fucking way. You're not gonna be able to put this on. What's wrong with you? Did you did you drink bleach before you thought about this whole thing? Like there's no possible way you yourself what am I doing here? I'm just trying to I'm trying to demoralize him. You're demoralizing him and you're telling him how he you know his you know the tiger, you've seen the stripes, bro. Right. This isn't in your future. Right. I don't see why you need to sign up for something like this. You think you're gonna be able to get up and, and handle going and doing this job and you know you you gotta kinda treat it as you're a blue collar and this blue collar worker just says I can do it. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. To where it's maybe a little bit offensive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Am I trying to be funny or am I just trying to you, you can do whatever you want. Okay, cool. What are you doing? You what just you, you just want to kind of have yeah. uh, more of a disgusted undertone okay. yeah. of like, bro, I love you. Yeah. No, but you can't do it. This isn't you. And then can I stand up and walk away like, <laughs> like walk cro- like like leave him when I'm done talking to him? Can I just or you yeah, stay leave, here? Leave him dusted, like, like use that as. No, I, I, I think that's a little too stagey. 
Okay, cool. Just that. stay here. You guys are still friends for fuck's cool. sake. <laughs> <laughs> well, well like, you can even that's, that's what I was asking. asking. I was like, how, I was like, like, how hard are you going to go? You, but I see what you're saying. No, no, no. You're not going to tell him to lock up after, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he just wants to be more disgusted with you. when I feel like, you know. Okay. You can run that by me He's going to. So after, okay, after the stage shit, you're going to come back in here. He's going to say, you know, okay, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go pick up Jay. Jay Rich. go try to do his job with him at the barbershop. I'll see you later. You, you'll wrap it up. Thank you for coming. And you'll say, okay, I'm clear. And then you'll kind of speak straight with him. Don't be, don't be like, fucking a dick, yeah. mean or anything. Yeah. No, you can like, be a little bit mean. But just, you but be just truthful tell mean like how we yeah, are. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, just be straightforward. You know, yeah. Like, the show is off now. I don't have to be fucking Mr. Show. Right. I can yeah, just be real with you. I like the angle of Be real as a friend. Yes. Yeah. This, this isn't going to work. Yeah. What's not gonna work? Like you trying to be, you trying to do the day jobs. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that's my motivation. Like I'm always gonna be my Like I know you. I've seen you work before. Can I respond? I can say it. Back. Oh, I can say like it's your reaction. It's your reaction. Beautiful. It's you know however you want to play that. However you feel about this shit, honestly, should come. I'll show you. I'll show you, world. Father. 